Zimmer's Netter, just talking to teachers. Podcast pedagogy. What is Phil reading this week? Podcast pedagogy. Listening to teachers. Nailers Netter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about educational books, why we love them, and how we use them in our classrooms. With guest authors, publishers, podcasters, and of course, teachers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Nailers Natter. And it's Nailers Natter in the summer holidays. And we're also extra specially coming uh, live and direct currently from the USA with, uh, with today's guest. So we have Jay Schroeder with us. Jay, welcome to Nailers Natter. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be on the show, Phil. And it's a great pleasure for you to be here. And just tell us, before we get into the introduction, Jay, the dedication that you've put in to appearing on Naylor's Natter. So it's 7.30 <laughs> in the morning over there. Is that correct? 7.30 in the morning on summer break. Yes, absolutely. Fantastic. And that is the level of dedication, listener, that the teachers on this podcast put <laughs> into speaking to you directly. So thank you again, Jay. Really, really appreciate it. Okay, listeners, we're into uh, a great book, which uh, is Jay's latest book. This is Teach From Your Best Self, A Teacher's Guide to Thriving in the Classroom. And it's an eye on education book uh, published by Routledge. So, Jay, if we can get into just a gentle introductory question to start us off with. Can you tell listeners a little bit about your career to this point and why this book is different to a lot of the education books that perhaps mm. we feature on Nailers Natter in that it firmly and squarely puts the teacher at the center of the education book. Yeah. So I've been teaching for 24 years. The last 10 years have been an alternative education. So these are the students that weren't successful in the mainstream schools. So typically it's a rougher bunch. Um, And throughout all this time, I've been learning a lot of strategies. Every professional development, every book that I read, has to do with giving teachers more techniques, more things to do for the students. In the U.S., there's this refrain, student-centered. We have to be student-centered, which means everything we do is for the students. Well, um, I don't know what it's like in the U.K., but I know that in the United States, we are facing a teacher crisis. Uh, Education system is in desperate straits. A year ago, the uh, most recent estimate, we, we lost 300,000 teachers across the nation. And this means that the people that are behind are having to fill up the gap and they're having to work extra hours and sub for teachers and, and, and kind of pick up the slack. Teachers are leaving the profession at a much faster rate than teachers are entering the profession. Um, and, and just the whole system is, is on the verge of collapse. So this clearly isn't working. We have to start including teacher well-being in the equation of policy decisions. And my approach is basically, and this is uh, my experience, is when I'm thriving in a classroom, my students are more likely to thrive. If the teachers aren't thriving, the students aren't thriving. So bringing this back to a more teacher-centered approach, I think, is critical right now to look out for our teachers. Yes, and listeners in the UK will obviously be listening to that and thinking there's echoes exactly of what is happening over here as well. So you may be aware, Jay, in terms of there's a lot of uh, industrial action, strikes with teachers and other public service workers in the UK. Uh, I've obviously impacted quite a lot on this academic year, but we've got similar issues to yourselves there in terms of uh, recruitment, retention, um, and, and particularly in disadvantaged communities as well. So yeah, like you said at the beginning, it's a really timely book that's kind of talking to you know the good bits of teaching and how you can obviously manage yourself with, within the profession so um big question jay for you second then mm. based on all of that um you know the context there both over in the states and over here why should anybody attempt to do the impossible job of teaching yeah and i would say that as depleting and all-consuming as the job can be it's also the best job in the world teaching is exists at the cusp between the present and the future. And to to get to work with young people and to to help them shape their life and guide, basically change their whole lifeline, their whole life experience through a positive interaction with the teacher. And when we do that, we actually have the power to change the futures of entire nations. Like 
literally, this is such a sweet position that teachers are in. Um, it's a sacred job as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I think it's the best job. And plus, it's really fun to engage with students and have that kind of banter going on when things are working well. So, you know, on the one hand, it's a, it's a, a job that's crushing. And on the other hand, it's absolutely wonderful. No, it absolutely is, Jay. Absolutely is. And I don't know if you listened at the beginning, listener, when Jay said that he's been teaching for 24 years and you can see how much he enjoys it because he only looks about 25 now. So I don't know how he's managed <laughs> to have been teaching for the last 24 years, whereas I've been teaching for about 23 years and, and look like I've been teaching for about 43 years. But there you go, listeners. That's that's the difference. Uh, fortunately, this is a, a not a visual podcast so you'll all be okay with that one okay Jay, let's get let's get into the second chapter which is learning to teach from my best self so if you can just describe to the listener what you mean by sort of your best mm-hmm. self uh, you know and then say how do you feel when you're in that state and how can teachers learn to teach from their best self yeah yeah so you know it's going to vary right uh, i i had an experience well my daughter's visiting me and uh, she's 21 and she's off in college in another another state, but she's here right now. And so I got to spend time with her, and she's uh, it's glorious for me to do it. And I took her paddleboarding uh, yesterday, and we went out several miles on this big giant lake, and we're on our way back, and this big wind whipped up, and we're paddleboarding into the wind, and it's you know it's hard as hell, and the waves are kicking up, uh, and we're just laughing. And there's just this fun and joy. And at times it doesn't feel like we're moving, but you know, I just have this image in my head of her blonde hair streaming back behind her, her powering through, us, smiling and laughing through. And, and for me, that's a that's a best self moment. But I don't want people to get um, get the idea that it has to be just like peak moments, right? Because best self just means I'm authentic to and have and basically have access to my whole brain no matter what's happening. When we get under a lot of stress, uh, the machinery in our brain uh, will tip us into a fight, flee, or freeze reaction. Uh, it's one of, the, one of the obstacles that teachers face. And when that happens, we literally lose access to our executive function. And that reduces our, our uh, effectiveness in those moments. So if I can at least keep access to my whole brain, if I can be able to respond to situations rather than react, I'm going to be much more effective and I'm going to save myself from the wear and tear of the stress and sort of the crushing weight that I would otherwise experience doing this job. Such a good point and such a great image there, Jay, as well, in terms of how you're spending your holidays. Um, it's mm. not quite the same over here, although, you know, for the listener's benefit, if I look out the window, I can actually see the sea, listeners. So it's not it's not the ocean, but it is, you know, if you want to go paddleboarding in uh, Blackpool, feel free, people, can be done. Um, <laughs> But just on a serious note, you're absolutely right, because as we said at the beginning, you know, in the first week or so of the summer holidays here and you start to think, right, suddenly your brain does open up from those day to day stresses of the teacher. But suddenly you remember that I like music. I can actually go and listen to some music. <laughs> I remember that I enjoy reading books and I've got the capacity yeah. to be able to do that. I think, oh, you know, I might have the odd friend that might be useful to kind of get in touch with. And, and you're, you're different, you know, with your own children, you're different with your friends, all of those kind of things. So you're absolutely right there about that kind of idea of your best self is opening up the mind a little bit more compared to just that kind of daily grind of the yeah. classroom and the routine that exists there. It's absolutely right. Well, and that's, you know, that's, that's the promise of Teach From Your Best Self is being able to experience more of that during the school year. So you don't have to wait for summer. You don't have to wait for the, the holiday break uh, around the holiday time. You can actually have that, more of that during your teaching year and Definitely. while you're teaching too. Definitely. Definitely. So in terms of that, that stress reaction, so, I mean, obviously you've, you've alluded to some of this at the beginning with mm-hmm. the recruitment, retention, et cetera, but why do teachers feel constantly plunged into these stress reactions? Um, and you do in the book, you list some stresses that teachers commonly face, and then you offer some constructive suggestions about what teachers can do about them. So just tell us a little bit about, yeah. more about that, Jay, if you could. Yeah, well, one of them, I think the big one is, is of course, there's way too much to do and, and not enough time. Teachers are constantly have this uh, constant 
stress of trying to erase, to try to finish all of the tasks, all of the things to do. And then more stuff just gets added on throughout the day. And, it, and it's stressful. It's very stressful. Um, and then the expectations are completely unreasonable. Um, in fact, I, I believe that the, U, that the United States education system would crumble tomorrow if teachers stopped donating hours. Uh, the only reason we stumble along at all is because of the hundreds of probably millions of hours donated uh, that teachers put into the profession. Why do they do it? Because they love kids. But that's not a sustainable way to run an education system, and it doesn't look out for teachers at all. Um, you know, if you if you think of one of the things, too, that I always found interesting, I'd go to these professional development trainings and learn all these techniques to engage student learners and teach instructional methods. Um, and they never really address the fact that students don't really care to learn what we're teaching them. Like, they're not bought in coming in. And so we have to also face student resistance. Uh, and then if you kind of combine that with mental health issues, which are surging in the United States amongst young people. Uh, and then, you know, it, you may not have the problem as severe as we do in the United States, but there's always this kind of background concern and anxiety about someone coming into your school with a gun and mm -hmm. mowing down teachers and students. Uh, and that's just a few of the things. And then there's all these random things that happen and uh, parents being upset. There's the political politicalization of education happening in the U.S. right now, uh, where opportunist uh, politicians are spreading misinformation about educators in order to win votes and power. And it's, it's, it's shameless. It's awful. But it, all of it is this combined load that kind of puts teachers on the brink. And then a little thing then could easily tip them into a stress reaction. Yeah. I mean, to echo a lot of those, you know, we've seen over here that, you know, a lot of essential services, a lot of things that have been sort of centrally provided by, by government have been taken away and, you know, schools being at the forefront of the community are having to deliver on a lot of those kind of things. And it's having sort of a knock on effect in terms of, you know, like I said, extra teacher hours, teachers spending their own money on resources, et cetera, for children. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, in terms of those mental health issues that you talked about and, you know, the attendance, I don't know what the attendance is like over there as a sort of general figure, but over here it is plummeting by the week, you know, the levels of attendance of, of students coming into school and kind of the response to that is, well, the teachers need to do more. And it's always right. being put at the door of the teacher. So that links in very nicely what you're saying that, that adds to the stress reactions. You know, I said before about how long I've been doing it for, and I'm not looking back with sort of rose tinted spectacles at the, the good old days, but teaching was at the forefront of what you were doing 20, 25 years ago. It now seems to be there's any number of other things that you're also responsible for before you can even mm -hmm. consider the subject material or the class that you're actually teaching. That's right. Yeah. So I, I like this chapter, Jay, that you've done. I mean, I, lo I love the book. And just to remind listeners, so the book is Teach From Your Best Self, A Teacher's Guide to Thriving in the Classroom. And we've done a lot of work over in the UK. And again, I know for listeners, I'm generalizing here, but obviously in, in terms of sort of school policies and procedures, we've done a lot around sort of trauma-informed practice and things like that. But what I like what you've done here is that you've looked at hurt spots, which is similar kind of theme to what we're talking about, but you've talked about how they affect teachers. Because, you know, Naturally and understandably, we come at this from a sort of trauma-informed practice approach to how students are affected by this. But also, teachers have been through a lot, whether that's in their own personal life, whether that's mm -hmm. been the pandemic or whatever it might be. So tell us a little bit more about these hurt spots. What are they and how do they affect teachers and students alike? Yeah, what I'm calling hurt spots are uh, kind of the residue of previous earlier trauma that we've experienced in our life that we end up carrying forward. Uh, and, and so if I come into an experience that, that echoes, has some kind of echo or some kind of flavor of that previous traumatic experience, it's going to trigger and awaken that hurt spot in me. When that happens, I'll go into a stress reaction. So I'll, I'll typically go to fight, flee, or freeze. But I'll also be filled with the, the, the mo emotions and the pain from the original hurt spot. Any unresolved emotions will get awakened in me. And so I may feel angry. I may feel ashamed. I may feel afraid. I may feel anxious. Uh, I just may feel this really uncomfortable, uh, like crumbling inside of my body. Uh, it may also be physiological, not even emotional based. And, and so 
when that happens, our brains will automatically tell us that the situation we're experiencing is what's creating the problem. So I'm going to overreact to the situation. I'm going to react commensurate with how I feel, not with what the situation actually is. And that's very problematic as, as educators. Uh, it has us wildly overreact. It has us um, uh, feel, you know, feel ashamed of ourselves and what we do. It has us be less effective. It undermines the learning environment. And the other thing it does is it triggers stress and hurt spot reactions in our students, which creates power struggles. And then once we get entangled in those power struggles, it's really a no-win situation. And the learning environment that we're trying to create is trash. Nobody's learning anything. Uh, lots of students, you know, we've kind of all have stepped outside of our right mind and are trying to uh, teach and learn in a mindset that, that isn't suitable and not made for that. So that's what hurt spots are. And uh, I have been kind of surprised at I'm the first person to talk about that I've least that I'm aware of the role in, of that in education because it seems to me it plays a pretty big role I know it has in my own experience that when I'm teaching in front of a class the next thing you know I'm I'm kind of trembling and I feel like the twin towers have just crashed inside of myself and I've got this pit in the hole of my stomach um, and then how do I teach a class from there so that's kind of what they are um, and students experience them too. And the important thing to know about when students have those is for me not to take their outbursts personally. If I understand that's a hurt spot reaction, this isn't personal to me. It's gonna help me get, help me avoid getting entangled with that and getting into a power struggle and, uh, and having that trigger my own hurt spot or, or stress reaction. Mm. No, it's really interesting, Jay. And then, you know, something that perhaps we look to maybe consider more as a profession is, you know, how we look after the teachers that we have got, because obviously we've both mentioned previously that it's difficult to recruit, it's hard to retain, but we, we kind of, we're there for the children, we're there to make sure that they get the best experience possible. Mm -hmm. But I suppose it's the whole ethos of your book. If we don't look after the teachers that we've got and we don't have those mechanisms and those experts within a school environment that can support teachers or even just the ability to recognize when you're struggling a little bit and actually be able to mm -hmm. share that rather than just say, well, I've got to carry on. I've got to be stoic because, you know, I'm the caregiver here. I'm the, the leader in this room. And it's really nice that you've identified that. And it will reassure a lot of people. And like I said to you, you know, my mind's a lot open, more open this week because I'm on holiday and sitting there and reading mm -hmm. through this and just thinking, yeah, I can identify a lot of times when that's been me. Mm -hmm. And it's really helpful <laughs> to get that out in the open and share that. So thank you for that. One of the things, Phil, that I experienced before I, I knew what this was, um, I would feel ashamed and I feel like it was just me. And I would feel mm -hmm. like I need to hide it. Right. And I think we probably do try to hide these kind of this, the inner experience of ourselves as teachers from each mm -hmm. other because uh, no one else is talking about it. So, Maybe I'm the only one having these problems. Um, mm -hmm. But since I've started leading Teach Free and Best Self trainings and working with educators, it's really clear uh, this is this is widespread. You know, we're all feeling this. We're all kind of in this same boat together. So we can we can start supporting each other now. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, we can. So just linked into that, Jay. Then we've got a lot of assumptions. Perhaps you know that stoicism is one of them about what it means to be a good teacher. So tell us a little bit about what beliefs and assumptions and norms we have that teachers hold and perhaps where some of those are erroneous or perhaps where we could start to maybe unpick some of those and, and form a new model of what it means to be a good teacher. Yeah. So one of the assumptions that, that I, I find super interesting is this, this idea that students learn based on what teachers do. And that seems to be so baked into education that it goes unquestioned and nobody really even brings it up as a topic of conversation. Of course, students learn based on what teachers do. But what that leads to is the conclusion is if students aren't learning, that means we have to have teachers do more. We have to have them do different things, more things. We have to keep getting the recipe right. And we have to keep piling in more mandates, more policies, more new initiatives, more on teachers' plate because obviously they're not doing the right things. And the other part of that is... We need to then control what they do to make sure that they're doing all the things we want them to do. So then teachers start getting micromanaged, which removes their sense of agency and their sense of feeling like an empowered professional 
who's uh, equipped to do to make their own decisions based on the experiences that they're that they're having. So that assumption is wrong, and it's clearly not working because we've been doing this for decades, and it's not making things better. It's just depleting teachers, and the learning results aren't aren't uh, learning gains aren't what we want them to be. Uh, so that's one assumption. And Teach Bring Bell basically takes that assumption and turns it on its head and says, you know, what if what actually matters is the self the teacher brings to the classroom? What if that matters more than what they do? So that if I'm in my best self, I mean, I'm still going to, I'm actually going to be more equipped to make the best moves and best choices that will serve my students because I'll have access to my all of my executive function. I'll be in your summer mode, Phil, of the yeah. open mind, open brain. I'll have access to my creativity. What if that's the most important thing? And then I guess another assumption that complicates things for teachers is that, you know, we're expected to sacrifice ourselves for our students. And it's, it's also really kind of baked in that a good teacher is going to be the ones that that burns the midnight hour every night, creating papers, gets up early, preps for their day, uh, spends their weekends uh, creating new lesson plans, new approaches, uh, will reach into their pocketbook thousands of dollars for classroom supplies, uh, will will go to conferences in the summer and be thinking about their, their students. You know, so there's this, this sense that uh, it's because it's for the students and because we love the students that the best teachers end up sacrificing themselves. The, the problem with that, one of the problems, is that I can maybe sustain that for one or two, maybe three years, and then I'm going to completely burn out. But you know, how many teachers, how many students can I touch in one or two or three years compared to a 30-year career? You know, we have to start as educators playing the long game, which means taking into account, hey, I, I want to be great, not just for the students I have right now, but for the students that I'm going to have five years from now, for the students I'm going to have 10 years from now. And what do I need to do now to best take care of myself for those students? Because they matter just as much as the ones I currently have in the seats in front of me. It's such a good point. And, and, you know, I've got to the age now where, and I'm, I'm sure that you haven't had this, Jay, but I've taught the parents of the children. You know, it's one of those. And, and it, it is nice sometimes to have the conversations with them and see that you actually you haven't changed too much over time, which kind of gives me a little bit of confidence <laughs> of thinking, right, well, I haven't become some sort of grumpy old man because I've been made so cynical by such a long time in education. But you're absolutely right about that kind of approach to it. And, you know, that's why in this summer mode that we keep talking about, you, you already find yourself missing school a little bit now because you're thinking, well, look at all these mm -hmm. things. I'm excited of all the things that I could do in September. And if you're what you're suggesting there, we could channel that feeling every weekend or every yeah. time we go back into the classroom rather than feeling like, oh, I've got those year 10 reports to do. I've got to make sure I've got this middle level leaders meeting. I've got to be attending this. I've got to go to that. And you're just racing through and missing all of the good parts of the teaching aren't you there you're absolutely right mm -hmm. it's a really interesting way of flipping that sort of narrative around what makes to be a good teacher it's fascinating stuff it really is okay so in terms of that's the kind of assumptions but you, you've kind of alluded to some of these but what really matters then in your experience when it comes to teaching and learning and how do you know that it actually matters yeah so and the teacher your best or the best self model for teaching and learning is uh, if you can imagine a triangle and the top of that triangle the top point is the teacher teaching from their best self the bottom right is i'm relating to students in ways that tend to bring out their best selves and the bottom left i'm creating a learning environment that brings out the best in me as well as my students so all of the all of the Principles in Teach Bring Best Self are designed and approaches to help us uh, address one of those three. So what I'm asserting is that the most important thing is that I'm coming from my best self, my students are coming from their best self, and that the learning environment is set up so that it brings out the best in both, both of us. There's three, um, you know, three reasons that I can, I can say is like what, why this matters so much. And one of them I've alluded to in talking about how we basically lose our executive function when we fall from our best self. Uh, if, you know, I could have two people do the same difficult task and one of them coming from a really relaxed place and one of them I'm just going to 
really get them super stressed and tip them into a stress reaction right before they have to do it. And then say, okay, now go. And it's really clear which one's going to be the most successful at the task. The one who's centered, the one who's relaxed, the one who's clear and methodical and just moving through without getting flustered and stressed in the process. Um, the other thing to think about is non-best self-states are contagious. And this is because of the mere neurons in our brain. Um, if I'm in a stressed and flustered place, I'm going to tend to trigger that in my students. And I'm actually going to make it harder for them to learn. And that's when the class disruptions start to happen because, because they're now feeling uneasy and anxious because their brains are firing uh, in, in basically sympathy with my brain. Uh, and then the third thing to think about is uh, would we learn something Stress and pressure are inherent in the learning process. So you think about the best case scenario, if I'm going to learn a new, new, new task or learn a new skill, three stages. One, ideally, I'm excited about what I want to learn. A few, about a decade ago, I decided I want to learn how to sew my own clothes. So I got myself a sewing machine. I got some books on sewing and got some fabric and patterns and went at it. Then I hit stage two, frustration, discouragement. Why did I ever think that I could do this? This is way harder than I thought it was. Uh, and that's normal. It's kind of baked into the learning process. Those emotions that we feel um, and those thoughts that we experience about I'll never be able to, that's the process that happens when our brains are building new neural pathways uh, so that we can succeed and, and learn it. It feels like that. And then when we get to the third stage, that's pride, that's accomplishment. Now, for those of us that have successfully gone through those stages multiple times, we have confidence that whenever we hit stage two, we know we can continue. We know we can get through it. Uh, and that's what it means, I think, to be a lifelong learner, is to have that confidence because we have cycled through that process numbers of times successfully and got to the other side. Um, our students aren't there yet. And when they hit stage two, uh, they will flip into stress reactions. They will start to withdraw. They will want to give up. And what they need in that moment is a teacher that they trust, who's coming from their best self, who believes in them, who's able to support and encourage them to get through. That only happens if this reassuring presence of the teacher is there. That can get them through that second stage. And then they can get to the third stage. And then they can feel pride. And, and then they can start having success cycling through those. It's actually more complicated in the classroom because typically we don't give students the advantage of stage one. We just kind of launch into the lesson. And they're already not interested. So we haven't um, – I mean, in teacher preparation programs in the U.S., Nobody tells us that we should try to sell the, sell the thing we're teaching before we start teaching it. So we just start teaching it. And so students are immediately plunged into stage two, into that frustrating place. And, you know, so they, you know, retreat into their phones or they'll try to sneak um, uh, ways of distracting themselves or disrupting the lesson. And just kind of knowing that and kind of expecting this and making it normal um, is really going to help. And the only way that I can help students get through is if I'm in my best self. It's fascinating. I mean, I've said to you before, yeah, in terms of the, the book's really fascinating, but what I was thinking there is not just the impact that you not being at your best self can have on the students. And obviously that's the central focus of the book, but also for those of us that have a leadership responsibility or a position within school, not being from your best self or not teaching your best self and the impact that can have on your colleagues. I was just writing down then when you're thinking the impact that that can have. So if you're a principal or a vice principal in school and then you're coming in, not at your best self, and then you yes. immediately wonder why every interaction or reaction that you get during the day is critical or tired or mm -hmm. difficult. And then you start to think, oh, yeah, well, perhaps that's because that's what I'm bringing to these conversations in the first place. And if anybody who works directly with me is listening to this, I'm sure they'll be nodding their heads in agreement that you know <laughs> I, I've been in school last week or so just tidying up. Whatever, and I've been so much happier this week and that's nothing to do with the students not being there like obviously that's the way we're going but it, it's such a good point that in terms of what you bring to the to conversations with other people and what effect that can have uh, on a culture of a school couldn't it yeah well what you know it's i'm glad you brought up that point because i don't want teachers to think 
oh my gosh, it's another thing we have to do to prop up a rickety, uh, uh, broken system. Uh, because if teachers can carve out enough energy for themselves and we can start spreading this new approach, I want to change the education system. And, I, and it's also really clear to me that everything in teaching your best self from a student-teacher relationship applies to the building administrator-teacher relationship and also applies to the district leadership building administrator relationship. So, so what we need is to create schools that are actually conducive to inspiring, provoking, and bringing out everybody's best self, adults and students alike. And that's kind of the long-term vision of all of this. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think there's a, there's a misconception here that, um, you know, particularly for those of us that work in, in disadvantaged communities, disadvantaged environments, you know, you, you go to work and you try your best day in, day out to be told by external people um, and people that come to, to kind of inspect schools that you're not good enough and you're not working hard enough and you're not doing enough. And then they wonder why people don't necessarily want to work within those environments when there's potentially other places that you could work where you know, there may be less of that. And it's, really, it's even harder to bring your best self to those kind of environments when you're constantly being told by people that don't do the same job that you do and don't have the same pressures that you do, that you're just not good enough. And I'm not, I'm not saying that, obviously, from the students. The students are hugely appreciative on the whole. But uh, perhaps we'll, we'll come back to some of those themes maybe, maybe a little bit mm -hmm. later. Okay, so and I think this is where I'm going to come back to it. So you, you talk about in Chapter 10 that readers should draw a three-column chart. And just on a side issue, Jay, I really like what you've done with the diagrams because I know from having done a book, you know, in terms of making sure that you get the right diagrams in the right place. But also I love how interactive the book is. The reflection questions at the end of every chapter are really, really thought provoking and really get you to kind of think in depth about the chapter. So I didn't read it all at one go. I read it chapter by chapter and thought quite carefully about the reflection questions. So I really, really like those. And that kind of section in chapter 10, where you talk about these column headings. So you go for control, influence, and powerlessness. So why do you suggest this particular uh, chart should be drawn and how can teachers use that tool? Yeah. So in the United States, and I'm, I'm imagining this is true in the UK as well, teachers are given a message that they should control things over which they don't actually have control. Mm. So, you know, we're told to, we need to control student behavior. We need to control how many students are engaged in our class. There's this expectation that we have some kind of control over how students do on standardized tests, on how many students graduate. And, you know, and, and you know, I'm expected when the principal walks into my room that all of the students are engaged at all times. You know, and this is a kind of pressure but it's actually not real. I don't actually have control over those things. What I have is influence. I have influence. And in a really good teacher, a seasoned teacher, you can you can walk in the room and you can say, oh, they have control of their class, but really they just have a lot of influence and they know how to wield that influence in order to have the students um, look like they're under control, but they're not. I have control over myself. I have control over what I do. I have control over what I say. That control uh, is uh, productive if I'm in my best self. I can usually uh, manage things much more effectively from there. Um, and I think a lot of teachers uh, feel a lot of pressure to try to control things over which they don't have control, which is demoralizing, which is really doomed to fail, and it makes them feel like failures. Um, just because these columns haven't been identified. Now, one of the things that's important to know is that I'm going to use different tactics for control than I'm going to use for influence. So if I'm going to try to control somebody, I may, I may try to bribe them. I may try to um, threaten them with consequences. I may try to shame them. I may try to criticize them. All of those are tactics of control. They don't really, they don't work in education because kids don't really, they're not under our control. Influence, that's based on relationship. It's based on listening. It's based on appreciating, validating, encouraging, supporting. So I need to know what's in what category so that I can be effective. The other thing about influence is things in influence exist in a range. So over some things, I have quite a bit of influence, and over some things, I have quite a bit less. There's also timing factors into influence. Um, 
uh, we call teachable moments, those moments when timing factors outside of our control converge and suddenly a particular lesson is freighted with potential meaning and relevancy for students. And be, be, having the freedom as a professional to take advantage of that is really important because that just increases my influence. You know, and then I have the things over which we're powerless and trying to uh, control things over which I'm powerless or even influence them just leads to nothing but worry, anxiety, mm. uh, stress, nervous, breakdown. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, mm. there's a lot of things going on in the world that I find uh, I can start to doom scroll through my newsfeed and, and find myself uh, way out of my best self because, because these are all things that are, I'm really literally powerless over. I mean, I can do what I can do and might do my part, but but at the larger scale of the problems we're facing, it's it's important for me to remember what's in every category, because I only have so much time, energy, and attention in my lifetime, and I want to invest those in places that give me maximum impact before I leave. And especially as an educator, we want to maximally impact towards student learning, and so uh, knowing what's in each category actually really matters. No, it really does. And it's a really good way of looking at it. And I like, we're going back to what you said before about, you know, young, new teachers, early career teachers coming into the profession, thinking about, right, how's this going to look for me in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and actually looking at things that you can control, looking at things you can influence, and looking at things that, you know, like you said, you can do your part, but it's not a great deal that you can do about that. It's really quite freeing, isn't it, on a day-to-day basis, where you can really concentrate on delivering the subject that you're passionate about to the students in front of you. And, you know, just on a daily basis, making progress with that curriculum, whatever it might be, rather than just thinking, well, I can't do this and I can't get to there. And what if this, and I've got to go there. And, and you do, you see it on a daily basis, just running around, trying to control things that there's really very little we can do about. I don't want to, don't want to, be, don't want to become political. <laughs> okay. So you talked about this, this concept of radical acceptance, which is kind of tied into what you're talking about there. So just explain that concept for listeners, please. Yeah. So radical acceptance is a mindset in which I am not fighting with reality. I'm not resisting what's actually so. Uh, because we can put a lot, we can waste a lot of energy. And again, time, energy, attention, that's what we've got to do our jobs with and live a life with. And if I'm going to squander that by fighting with reality, um, I'm going to be depleted before I even start. Um, so I learned about this when I was a, a pretty new green teacher and I went into the classroom. I had a lot of uh, imaginary visions of what my students would be like, you know. So I, they were going to be super stimulated by the discussions of it because, my gosh, I me, of course they will. And gonna, their hands are going to fly up in the air, and they're going to be very respectful. They're going to be engaged with their education. They're going to take it seriously. They're going to see the importance of it and how much it mattered. Um, and they're going to completely behave and comply, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, then when I started teaching, the reality of my actual students was entirely different. It was a whole different thing. They didn't care about the lessons I was teaching. They didn't care about the discussions. They just wanted to screw around. It was way more fun to disrupt my class than it was to do the work. And so I had my imaginary students and I had my actual students. And I had a choice. So I chose my imaginary ones because they were much better and then I judged my actual students for not measuring up to the students in my imagination. I call that putting people in a box of should. I was basically making a box, shaping a box in my head of how someone else should be, and then trying to impose that on them and judging them for not measuring up. So for one, this was exhausting for me. For two, it made my class a lousy place because my students were under this shadow of uh, judgment. And of course, they're going to resist. And I think we know as educators what it feels like to be put in a box of shit, because we're put in a box of shit. There's a lot of expectations about what teachers should be and should do. And we feel the pressure of that. It doesn't feel good. Um, it actually makes us less effective. It makes us less inspired to want to work. It actually makes us cynical. It, it kind of wounds us over time, and we become cynical and bitter. So... Um, once I saw what I was doing, I let go of that box and realized I needed to accept students for where they were exactly as they entered my room. And that's the has to be the starting place to help them grow. 
Because unless I can accept them where they are, I can't help them go from there. Because that's where my influence is, right? And so creating this environment in my classroom now of acceptance for wherever students are and wherever they're coming from and helping them grow from that place gives me a lot more influence. And it's a lot, um, a lot less pushback from students. And it's, it's great for my sanity and my mental health because I'm no longer fighting against reality, which is a losing battle. Reality is bigger than we are. We can't fight it. Now, this doesn't mean that some behaviors aren't unacceptable because students can bring unacceptable behaviors in my classroom and I will address those, but I don't resist the fact that they brought them. I don't say you shouldn't have brought that behavior. You shouldn't have said that or done that. They did it. And now here's the consequences and here's how I'm going to handle it. But if I can do it that way, actually the the greatest uh, benefit of this is I can stay in my best self and deal with the situation and then just get back to teaching without getting dysregulated myself. That's great. And and linked to that, you've talked about field-based attention and why that's an antidote to, to mental fatigue that we've talked about. So just, just explore that a little bit more if you could, Jay, just field-based attention. Yeah. So if you imagine you're, um, you know, you go up in a skyscraper or you, uh, and you look out over the city, you know, you're going to see this whole cityscape and you'll see the clouds and the birds and you'll see the blue sky and then you'll see the buildings and, and you'll have the people and the cars driving below and you have all the sounds and you're basically taking in the whole vista at once. And that's an, that's an example of field-based attention. And it's relaxing. I think it's why human beings like to go to high places and why the most expensive houses are the ones built on the hills, you know, because it, it, it's good for us. Um, in the West, we're typically trained to use our attention more like an arrow or a vector. We concentrate our attention. We kind of winnow it down into a single line and we're just paying attention to that one thing or that one student. Now, if I don't know any of this, and I'm just using my default way of using attention that I've learned my whole life. Uh, I'm going to, as a teacher with so many simultaneous things to pay attention to, my only uh, viable approach is to just shift my attention from thing to thing to thing and person to person to person. We got the email. We got the intercom. We got this student wanting to go to the bathroom. We got these students needing this. We got this student screwing around over here on their phone. They're playing video games. I'm trying to. I have to pay attention to the lesson that I'm teaching. And do I have the learning targets on the board? And and where are we at? You know, just all of these things. And it's so exhausting when I have to keep shifting my attention. Boom, 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 boom. One thing to the next. But if I can bring that same style of attention that I would use at the top of that building into my classroom. And this is what I train my teachers to do. We fill the classroom with the field of our attention and we just keep it broad like that. We don't let it narrow down. And then if a student asks a question, I can like take a highlighter in my imagination and just mark them. They're the center of my attention, but I, they're the center of the field. But I don't need to narrow and constrict my attention down to that student. Um, it's much more relaxing it allows me to stay in my best self, uh, and it it has a huge impact on whether or not I'm susceptible to mental fatigue and exhaustion at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. And I can bet everyone who was listening to that was just picturing their classroom with exactly those things in there that you talked about. You know, have I done the register? Somebody wants to go to the toilet. Somebody's coming in or going out. I've got a visitor to the classroom. There's something outside of the window that's potentially quite interesting, more interesting than my science lesson, for example. So, yeah, but I like I like the analogy there. That's really useful to think of it in that sense and that that sort of mental highlighting of the things you need to pay attention to that you can come back to and just while keeping that broad field that, that's really good jay thank you for that right listener so we're getting to our last question because jay we always want to leave the listener wanting more we want the listener to go out mm. and get the book and it's a reminder that the book is teach from your best self a teacher's guide to thriving in the classroom so last question if we may jay which is you tell listeners a little bit more about the vital role of positive messaging and it's a hugely positive book isn't it this really really is yeah, I've attempted to, you know, create Especially a life. It was written at five thirty in the morning. I mean, that is that really was very positive. <laughs> yes, all for the last four years, I was telling Phil before we got on that uh, every day work on this book. Have to get up, get at my desk at five thirty, 
because my brain's too shot by the end of the day after teaching all day. So it's the only time I've had to work on it. So positive messages is something I've learned from my mentor, and it's it's been a huge boon for me as an educator. Um, it turns out that for people to have a healthy psychology, they need positive feedback from the people around them. They, we need to be seen for the positive things that we are and the positive things that we do. And when I started experimenting with this in my classroom, I saw classroom management issues take a just a nosedive, meaning there was hardly any compared to what there was before. Um, students need to know from us, their edu- you know, their teachers, what they're doing well. And, and having the courage to like give someone some feedback um, like that or, or a, some kind of message of appreciation really matters a great deal. Teachers need it too. In fact, it's impossible, it's not sustainable for a human being uh, to do a very difficult thing, day in, day out, war down, sacrificing themselves day in, day out, facing all of these problems and issues that we face in education without someone coming along and saying, you know what, I see what you're doing and I see the effort you're putting in and I want you to know I really appreciate it. That is like a lifeline that allows me to keep doing it. Mm. Um, and if I don't get that, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit. I'm going to give up. I, I, it's just too much. And the students are in the same place because, you know, school can be really hard for them. Um, and I think that one of the things that we could start doing as educators is start giving these messages to each other. Once we understand how important it is and how vital they are, I, I can't count on messages from my administration. They are going to come in my classroom probably as little as possible to do an evaluation in which they're coming in with that judgment a scrutiny mindset, and they're going to be, you know, looking for problems to put on a rubric. That's not really a, a, a source of positive messages. It, it, I think it should be. I think that uh, schools would do much better if administrators were cued into this about giving positive messages to their educators, but I can't expect it. Um, what I can do, though, is I can ask for messages from my colleagues and say, hey, you know, I had this really tough experience and here's how I handled it and uh, what do you think? And then, wow, you know, having someone reflect back on what they see and just voluntarily giving them to each other whenever we see each other do something. Um, it's a hard job. And without positive messages, it's really not not sustainable for us. I think it's a great point, Jay. And I don't know if you've got the same thing in the States there, but we've got um, a software, a piece of software. Uh, I'll give them a plug because I don't get paid by them uh, called StepLab, which um, kind of incorporates parts of lesson observations, things like that. But it also has two functions. It has a drop-in and a shout-out function. And it's exactly mm. what you're talking about there. So you get the opportunity to you know, pop into you know your colleague's classroom, see something that you think, oh, that's really good. You know, mm-hmm. I'd like to try that or students really benefited from that. And you can just very easily, sort of like a social media kind of thing, type in, really like what you did with that particular activity and ping that straight in to get an email. And no matter how long you've been doing it, how cynical you are or how tired you are mm-hmm. on a cold November evening or afternoon, sorry, in Blackpool, it's nice to get that validation from colleagues. It's nice to get that, you know, and it lifts everybody. to that So you're absolutely right with that. It really is you know, something that really keeps you motivated, keeps you going. And hopefully, if you have enough of that, it will aid and help that kind of recruitment and retention issue that people feel valued in the job that they're doing. Absolutely. Okay, right. So thank you, Jay, for your time. Really, really appreciate it, especially, as I said, early morning uh, over there. Mm. So just finish off with telling us a bit, sorry, tell us a little bit about where you can find the book and where we can find you on social media and maybe a little bit about your institute, the Teach From Your Best Self Institute. And are you speaking anywhere to promote the book? Are you doing lots of conferences? And are you possibly coming over and visiting the UK at some point? So uh, yeah, yeah, the floor is yours. All right. Well, I'd love to visit the UK. I haven't been there since I was a college student and I did uh, a study abroad in London with with a family there. And, uh, so I have a really soft spot for the UK and, and uh, loved my time there, desperate to go back. Uh, so it's on my it's on my look. I'll be looking for opportunities to do that. Okay. Um, the book is available right now on Amazon UK. It's also available directly from Rutledge. Uh, either place you'll find it. What I would suggest 
if you go to Amazon UK, I just went there and they still, they're like pushing, because I don't think anyone in the UK has bought the book yet. So you may be the, I think you're the first person still to have the book in the oh. entire country. Here it is, everybody. Um, Here it is. There we are. <laughs> um, what they what they have up, up at center is the hardback copy. And, and Rutledge does this thing with academic books uh, where they jack up the price to a very ridiculous, for my mind, ridiculous level. It's $120. No, no, get, or, and I don't know what that, what it is in pounds, but I know that the, um, the heart, the softback, get the softback. It's only 23.99 quid. And uh, uh, I think it's on sale right now at Rutledge. So you maybe save it, save a few quid that way. Um, and then the Institute, you know, I've been growing this in Southern Oregon where I live and have reached, oh, over a hundred educators in the region. And these institutes have been, they're, they're basically a big investment for teachers because I work with them for a week in the summer. And then we meet throughout the school year once a month to refine, to practice, to talk about what's working, what's not working as they try, as they begin to in, integrate and implement these practices into their teaching practice. Uh, and I'm thinking about, yeah, what would be some models that I could use that wouldn't be so time consuming? Uh, one thing, uh, I am going to be a lot more available because I've just resigned after 24 years, I've resigned from my school where I was teaching. And if, taking a job at the local education service district where I'm going to be more of an implementation coach. And that's going to free me up to fly to London, to uh, do more conferences, to do more trainings. And so I'm really excited about this new chapter. And then I guess I'll also say that, uh, boy, you asked me another thing and I it slipped my mind. But what Just it? social media. Yeah, so, get in touch, in oh, touch with you. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, uh, I have a website up. Uh, you can find uh, information about Teach From Your Best Self at teachfromyourbestself.org. You can also contact me at j. Actually, it's jschroeder at teachfromyourbestself.org. And there's a place on the website as well where you can make some comments and, and uh, send, me, send me a message. Great stuff. Well, we will we'll put um, links to your website on... Uh, on the show notes. So Jay, just a, a big thank you because this book came at a perfect time for me at the end of an academic year, a tough academic year, as I'm sure listeners will agree. And it just, you know, reinvigorated me, reminded me of the important parts of why we do the job that we do, but it also gave me a chance to ponder and to think about, right, how can I sustain myself? Because, you know, as a listener knows, I've been mourning about it all year. You know, th there's a lot of people that I work with who've had various health concerns and issues and things like that because a lot of things you talked about. I thought, well, how can we be more sustainable? But how can we also, you know, teach from our best selves in our own classroom and inspire other people to do the same? So thank you for writing it. Thank you for going to the trouble of sending it right across because I know how difficult and expensive that was. <laughs> and thank you for your time this morning. Really, really appreciate your time, Jay. Thank you. You're so welcome. Such a pleasure talking to you. Uh, appreciate your openness to this and allowing me to be on the show and to, to uh, introduce Teach from Your Best Self to a, a new audience in the United Kingdom. Nettur, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nimmer's Natter, just talking to teachers. Nailers Natter the Book Ideas and Advice from the Collective Wisdom of Teachers. Nailers Natter brings together a wealth of advice from the most influential voices in education today. In this exciting, one-of-a-kind book, Phil Naylor revisits the very best interviews from three years of education podcasting, drawing on the advice and opinions from some of the world's most innovative educators. Available now for pre-order from Amazon and out on July 7th, 2022.